podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. What's good, boys and girls? Welcome to the Two Footed Podcast. It is Tuesday, the 29th of June, and we're brought to you, as always, by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider that's a virtual privacy network, allows you to go online, change your location, access American Netflix, keep your data safe. LibertyShield.com, use the code EPLVPN to get 20% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk. Right, folks. Mental day yesterday. Mental day. Excuse my voice. I'm still getting my ass kicked by hay fever, but never mind that. What a day of international football. Croatia 3, Spain 5. Spain have been immensely dysfunctional in this tournament. They don't know... What's going on at centre-back? We've seen Pau Torres and Laporte. Now it's Eric Garcia and Laporte. Neither pairing have worked. Neither pairing worked yesterday when given different opportunities. The midfield has functioned well since Busquets came back in, but the attack still looks like a bunch of guys thrown together. Now, in credit to them, all three of the starters scored yesterday. Ferran Torres, Avaro Morata with a great goal, and uh, Pablo Sarabia. We also saw Mikel Oyarzabal come off the bench and score. This was just an insane game. Croatia went 1-0 up. Pedri passed back to Unai Simon from about 40 yards. Simon took a really casual attempt at controlling the ball. It skipped off his foot and into the back of the net. 1-0 Croatia. Spain looked in disarray. They'd had all of the ball, but they looked in complete disarray. They had no real feel to what they were doing. Busquets looked like he was in form. Pedri was playing well, and Koke had a good game. Some of the progression through the midfield was very good, but the attack was all over the place. The fullbacks weren't getting forward in, in support enough. But Pablo Sarabia makes it 1-1 on 38. Bit of a scuffle in the box. Ball drops to him. Decent finish. Keeper got a hand to it. Maybe could have done better. But that's 1-1. Cesar Aspilicueta, with his first goal for Spain, pops up in the box. Good, tidy finish from about six yards. He has a habit of doing things like this. For a very defensive-minded fullback, he pops up with goals and assists at big times throughout his career. And this was a big one for Spain. Ferran Torres made a three on 77. Really well-taken goal. Beats his man to a bouncing ball. 1v1 with the keeper. Very nonchalant, casual finish. Very, very easy. Game's over. Done deal. Spain are through. But nobody told Croatia, who through Orsic came back on 85 and get a goal, 3-2. And then Spain are clinging on, and they don't have the defensive solidity to cling on. Simon makes a couple of really good saves, uh, making up for the bad error. But Mario Pasalic, who's been underused in this tournament by Croatia, 
pops up with a late goal, doing what he does for Atalanta, yet another Atalanta player having a big moment in these tournament in this tournament, late run into the box, good finish, 3-3 and on into extra time we go. Morata makes it 4-3, brilliant finish, great control, brilliant finish, one of the more difficult chances he's had in this tournament, and yet he manages to score. He He is a contradiction of a footballer, he really is. And then Oyarzabal finishes it off on 103 minutes, 5-3. Now, Simon still has to make a couple of decent saves, but from there on, Spain did look like they were going to be able to cling on, and, and they did. Eight goals in the game, a cracking game, it must be said. No good defending on view at all. Really good midfield play from both. Slightly disjointed attacks. You never saw a real link-up between the Spanish front three and with the Croatian front three, Vlasic and Rebic would prefer to play deeper. Rebic is best kind of either as a 10 or as a as an out-and-out winger rather than a wide forward. And Vlasic is the same. Um, I thought Petkovic had an absolute stinker. It was no surprise he got pulled off at halftime. Kaleta Carr came in for Lovren, who had been suspended after playing two games, getting two yellow cards. And it, it appeared like the instruction he got was go out and play like Dejan. So he did. Uh, if Liverpool were looking at him, I hope they're not anymore. Um, he's, not, that's, he's a good defender. He just wouldn't be my cup of tea. Little bit error prone, little bit rash. Doesn't, when you watch him for Marseille, he's a very commanding defender. He's the leader of the Marseille backline. He isn't with Croatia. And I think that's where he struggles. And at Liverpool, he wouldn't be because you'd have Van Dijk and Matip, and Gomez, more experienced players. Even though Gomez is younger than him, he's more experienced in that Liverpool team. I think Kaletikar needs to be in a team where he is the leader of the defence, where the line moves when he moves. It was very disjointed between him and Vida. Vida would step out, Kaletikar wouldn't. Kaletikar would step out, Vida wouldn't. You could tell they hadn't played together a whole much, a whole, a whole bunch of much. Uh, and with Gvardiol at left-back, who's a very, very talented young defender, but he's a centre-back playing out of position, his positional sense was all over the place in this game. Those two, Kletikar and Gvardiol, that's the likely long-term pairing for Croatia. And you'd hope that in the next 18 months up until the next World Cup, they'll start to transition to that, even if Vida and Lovren are still the first-choice pairing going into the next tournament. You'd hope that in games in between now and then, we'll see Kletikar and Gvardiol as the pair. They've got some really good options at left-back. They don't need to be playing a centre-back there. Like they really don't need to be playing a centre-back there. Um, but obviously, Dalic, the manager, has has some issues with Borna Sosa and, uh, and, and won't pick him. But, you know, Braderich from Lille is a really good left-back. He could handily sl- slip in there and do a really good job. Uh, Simi Versalco was dropped for this game. Not surprising. He'd had a bad tournament. But you'd imagine he'll come back in as right-back when they get back to the World Cup qualifiers. Um, Spain move on. I still think there's a lot of question marks over them. I still think they're suspect at the back massively. And I think their attack against teams who won't be open at the back. We saw them struggle with with Poland. We saw them struggle desperately against Sweden. Teams that are well-drilled, well-organized, and who communicate really well will cause Spain major trouble because that attack lacks creativity, lacks structure and lacks an out-and-out goal-scoring number nine. You can get away with it if you've got two goal scorers either side. And I know Sarabia scored yesterday, 
but he's so far off the level that you would want. It's a bit of a concern. Um, the second game then, probably the biggest shock of the tournament so far. Switzerland 3, France 3, and Swiss, Switzerland go through 5-4 on penalties. Harris Seferovic scores on 15. A really good header, dreadful defending by Clement Longley. Unsurprising, he's not a very good defender. Seferovic with a great header, scores the goal, puts them 1-0 up. France huffed and puffed a bit and had all the ball, but couldn't really accomplish much of anything. On 51, Switzerland get a penalty. Zuber makes a run into the box. Does the honest thing. Tries to stay on his feet. It's initially not given. Then on review, it gets given. It's a penalty to Switzerland. Ricardo Rodriguez, who'd missed his last two penalties for the Swiss national team, is somehow given the responsibility to take this kick. Steps up. And it's a very, very tame effort. Hugo Lloris makes a good save. But it's a very tame effort. You'd wonder why he was taking that penalty. When you've got Shakiri on the pitch, when you've got Xhaka on the pitch, who strikes the ball very, very well. Um, I, I found it very confusing that Rodriguez, having missed two in a row, was, was on the spot kick. That moment changed the game, and it sparked France into life. And for 25 minutes, France were incredible. Absolutely incredible. The ball moved quickly through the lines, moved quickly through midfield into the front three. And the interplay, the movement, the dummy runs, the dribbling, the touch, the creativity, the passing was just sensational. France get a goal. Benzema, brilliant. Great team goal. A little bit lucky with his first touch. Second touch is a dream. Into the net. Second goal, two minutes later, is even better. Wonderful bit of play. Brilliant by Griezmann. Goes to chip the keeper. Jan Sommer makes a good save. Ball loops up. And Benzema heads home from about eight inches out. France continued to push forward, continued to, to go for the throat. Paul Pogba scores an absolute worldie from about 25 yards out, just bends the ball nonchalant as you like into the top corner of the net. Could have put two keepers in the net. They weren't saving this ball. 3-1, game over. That's it, done. France are the world champions. France are going through. France will play Spain and probably beat them and go on to a semi-final against Belgium or, or Italy. That's what it looked like. And then France just fell apart. For whatever reason, they took their foot off the gas, they stepped back, they tried to contain the game, they allowed the Swiss to push forward, they gave the Swiss some confidence. Seferovic makes it 3-2 on 81, and still France don't react. Still they retreat further, become more defensive. And Gavranovic picks the ball up, beats a man on the edge of the box, slots at home, 3 all, 90 minutes. Into extra time we go. Neither side wanted to take too many risks in the extra time. We get to penalties. And from here, I mean, you look at the French team, you look at the Swiss team, you think, well, France should win this. Gavranovic steps up 1-0. Pogba, 1-0. Shar, 2-1. Giroud, 2-2. Akanji, 3-2. Turam, 3-0. Little bit lucky there. Keeper should have done better. Vargas, very lucky penalty. 4-3. Goes in, but Lloris should have saved it. Kimpembe steps up. He's had a shocker of a game. He scores. 
Mamedi steps up, he scores is five four, and Kylian Mbappe is on the tenth penalty. You bet your house on him. He has not had a good tournament, but you, you expect him to step up in these moments. It's not a good penalty. Jan Sommer makes the save. There's a little bit of hesitancy. Has he come off his line? He doesn't celebrate. Mbappe is saying when he's off his line, they go to the review. His foot was on the line because he dragged it behind him as he stepped out. 5-4. France go home. An absolute shocker. Nobody expected this. Nobody expected when this was the draw that lined up that Switzerland would have much of any, any kind of chance. Everybody thought France had beat them. France have been the best team in the world for a number of years now. Forget the world rankings. France got to the final in Euro 96 and should have won it. Were the best team at Euro 96. They went to the World Cup. They won the World Cup and nobody really troubled them all that much. Belgium a little bit in the semis. They came into this tournament. Did a good first 25 against France. Against Germany rather. They were poor against the Hungarians. They were poor for large spells against the Portuguese. And they had moments that were very good. And the midfielders, Kante and Pogba, both played very well. That battle between the two of them and Ronaldo Sanchez was incredible. And they play here. And for 25 minutes, like I said, from, from when Rodriguez missed the penalty until Pogba scored, France were incredible. The football they played was just awe-inspiring at times. And yet they're out. And there'll be question marks, there'll be fingers pointed, but the biggest finger needs to be pointed at Didier Deschamps. France have gotten where they've gotten by playing a back four and either a 3-1-2, a 3-3, or a 2-3-1. But it's always been a back four. And Deschamps, likely because this competition has seen a lot of teams play with wing backs, maybe he was overlooking... Switzerland, and maybe he was looking at a potential matchup with Belgium and thinking, well, they'll have wingbacks. I want wingbacks who will match up with them. He picks Benjamin Pavard as the right wingback. Pavard has had a bad tournament, but he's also a centre-back by nature who can play right-back. He's a good right-back, but he's had a bad tournament. He's never a wing-back in his life. Adrian Rabiot playing left wing-back, a very good centre midfield player, has played left-back in his, in his past at, at PSG. Didn't like it at all. Sticks him as a wing-back. Now, if you're going to play him as a wing-back, I don't have a huge problem with it. I do have a massive problem with Pavard as a wing-back, though. When you've got Leo Dubois sitting on the bench, one of the best attacking right-backs in Europe, and you're playing Clement Langlet, who's a poor defender, as the middle one in your three, and Pavard as the right-sided wing-back, that's just a disgrace. There was no reason for it. He could have played Dubois as the right wing-back, Pavard is the right centre-back, then Varane, and then Kimpembe. Now, Kimpembe's had a poor tournament as well. And I think if they'd been playing a back three and Lucas Hernandez was fully fit, I think Lucas Hernandez might have taken that role. I think if Kunde was fully fit, he'd have been in the back three as well. And we might have seen Kunde, Varane, and Lucas Hernandez. But with those two out, they just didn't have the, the players to play that system. And if they were going to do it, Dubois had to be the right wing-back. With Luca Dina out as the option on the left, you have to have one of them who's going to be comfortable to get forward, be vertical, have pace, good delivery. You don't get that from Rabiot, who wants to play narrow. You don't get it from Pavard, who's more defensive-minded. He could have gone Dubois and Lamar, but he didn't. 
and he knew very early on that this shape wasn't work, wasn't working, and he changed it, went back to the the back four. But at that point, he was playing Kimpembe as a left back. Um, now he took Legney off very very quickly. Off at half time, he he'd had a, an absolute nightmare. Severovic was eating him alive, and Severovic is not a great player, but really really poor management from Deschamps. I don't think he's a particularly good manager anyway. I think, you know, he won a World Cup. I think they won it in spite of him. I think if you go back and watch the Euro 96, uh, the, Euro, the Euro 2016 final, um, that defeat for me is largely on Deschamps as well. Uh, it wouldn't be a surprise to me if he doesn't have a job in the next couple coming months. I think Zidane is available. He wants the job. I think that the smart move is to, to go to Zidane and start to usher in more of the new generation. I mean, Clement Langley should not be in the French squad. Moussa Sissoko should not be in the French squad. I know he's the captain, but Hugo Lloris should no longer be in the team for France. Not when Mike Magnon has been a brilliant goalkeeper now for two straight years. Best goalkeeper in France. I don't know why Mandanda is still in the squad. He's not one of the three or four best keepers in France for my for my money let alone those who play outside of France. It's it's a bizarre squad, badly picked. Like, Quarantine Tolisso doesn't get a game at Bayern. Why is he in the squad? Why wasn't Camavinga in the squad? It it just doesn't make sense. And Moussa Soko, think about this now. We've seen him in the Premier League for a number of years with Newcastle and Spurs, and he's not very good at all. He has 71 caps. 71 caps. He is one of Deschamps' go-to. Do you remember when Mourinho was at Spurs and was at United and was obsessed with the idea of buying Eric Dyer? And then when he went to Spurs, he insisted on having him in the team all the time. That's what it is with Deschamps and Sissoko. Deschamps has 71 caps. And all bar four of them, all bar four of them came under Deschamps. And like in years where there aren't competitions, he doesn't play a whole bunch. He left them out of the World Cup squad. It's not like his form's been good for Spurs since the World Cup. But he's back in. Bizarre. So France out, Switzerland on. Switzerland will play Spain. So we now have the top half of the draw. We'll have Italy against Belgium. That should be a cracker. Belgium, potentially, without Kevin De Bruyne and with a half-fit Eden Hazard. Spain against Switzerland. Again, you'd expect Spain to get through, but, I mean, Switzerland just... They just knocked out France. So they'll go into that game thinking, well, they're not as good as France. We can definitely do a number here. The Swiss are quite open defensively. And that could be their Achilles heel against uh, a Spanish team that's now scored 10 goals in the last two games. But likewise, they'll feel that Seferovic and Mbolo will cause Spain's back to be it Pau Torres and Laporte or Eric Garcia and Laporte or Eric Garcia and Pau Torres, whatever he goes with. They'll feel they can cause them trouble, no matter what. They'll feel like they can cause them problems. So that's the top half. In the bottom half of the draw, we know that it'll be the Czech Republic against Denmark. Great opportunity now for one of them to get through to the semi-final. 
And today we find out who will play in the other part of the bottom half of the draw. So we get England, Germany, Ukraine, Sweden. Sweden obviously topped their group ahead of Spain. Drew with Spain. Really good defensive performance. And Isak up front caused them a lot of trouble. Um, obviously beat both Poland and Slovakia um, to, to get through in the group. You'd imagine Kulisevsky comes back into the team for this one. But Ukraine are no dummies. They're, they're not here by fluke. They are a good team. They gave the Netherlands a very good game. They beat North Macedonia and were pretty impressive. They lost to Austria, but Austria a good team. It wasn't like they lost to nobodies. They lost to a good team. I think it should be a good game. I'm hopeful it's Kulisevsky and Izak up front. I think that's the pairing that will cause real trouble for that Ukrainian defensive pair. I'm expecting that we'll see Sweden sit in, be very organized, very compact, and try and spring the counterattack with those two causing problems. And then Forsberg off the left, probably the biggest goal threat in the team. Ukraine, we we didn't see much of Shankov in the group stages. I think he's their best player. I'm hopeful he'll come into the team for this one. But Yarmolenko's been in really good form, so I don't know if Shevchenko will be willing to drop him. Um, Ukraine are a strong team back to front. The goalkeeping situation is where I think they're weak. I think that's the biggest flaw in this Ukrainian team. Don't trust their goalkeeper. I think they've got a good back four, solid midfield, and up front, they've been problematic for everybody they've played. So... They'll be a threat to Sweden, but I do think the, the Swedes will come through. I think it'll be a tight game, but I think Sweden will come through, and that'll set up Sweden to play one of England or Germany. Now, England are at home. It looks like the team is going to be Pickford and goal, a back three of Walker, Stones, and Maguire, Trippier and Shaw as wingbacks. Phillips and Rice in the middle of the park, and then Saka, Harry Kane, and Raheem Sterling as the front three. Now, Saka's inclusion, I think, is is a big one to leave out Phil Foden, who hadn't had a good tournament, but came into the competition as you know one of the the starlets of this England England team. I agree with the decision to bring in Saka. I think Saka is the one who can cause Germany real problems for me I wouldn't be going with a back three I don't think it suits England to play a back three I would be leaving Trippier out and getting another another winger in maybe bringing in Sancho and playing Saka right Sancho left Sterling and Kane through the middle starting off Kane then you go with your double pivot in midfield and then a back four of Walker Stones Maguire Shaw I think that would be a better way to combat this German team we know what the Germans are going to try and do. They're going to try and get those wing-backs really advanced. They're going to, there's going to be interplay between the two. We'll see Kimmich get forward into the box and cross for Gosens coming in at the back post. Likewise, we'll see Gosens getting forward and crossing for Kimmich coming in at the back front, at the, at the back post. rather. Two interesting battles at, the, at either end of the field. The English defence, Walker and Stones are error-prone, as is Maguire, but Maguire also lacks pace. Now, Havertz and Muller are not going to beat you at pace. They'll beat you at movement. 
which could cause problems for Stones and Maguire, who struggle against intelligent players. But if Germany sits Serge Gnabry on Harry Maguire, that's going to be a big path to victory for them. His pace against Maguire will cause England major problems. I think Havertz is primed for a big game. He's been pretty impressive in the tournament so far. He's obviously played against each of these defenders a couple of times this season. He caused City's backline trouble every time he played against them. But at the other end, Saka was brilliant in the last game. Sterling's got two goals. Kane has been dreadful. Absolutely dreadful. Now, the excuses are already out. He's saving himself for the knockout round. Well, you better put in a big performance then. Because you were so poor in the previous games that if you weren't captain, the clamour for you to be out of the team would be enormous. The German backline is not the best. Ginter's okay. Hummels is past his best. Rudiger's the best of the three, and, and he's got his own flaws. But Rudiger's pace is going to be really important here. Rudiger's going to have to be aware of the fact that Hummels is quite slow. Ginter's not great on the turn. He's going to have to be able to cover across while also keeping tabs on Saka. The middle of the park is going to be very interesting. It looks like it'll be Rice and Phillips for England. Now, if it is Rice and Phillips, Phillips has to be given some life, some license to go forward. He has to play more like he did against Croatia than he did against Scotland. He has to be allowed to carry the ball forward, to get himself into the final three, to involve himself in the attacks. Otherwise, Bellingham should be starting. If you're going to start the two sitters, I think you're asking for trouble. Sky Germany now reporting that Ilkay Gundogan will miss tonight's game due to injury. That sounds like a big blow. I actually think it's a positive for Germany. Now Yogi Lowe has no choice but to pick Leon Goretzka. He's got to put Goretzka in next to Cruz. I think he needed to do it anyway, but I think it would have been a hard decision. Even though Gundogan's not at a good tournament, he's had a very good season, and he is always capable of popping up with a goal. But Goretzka's been really impactful in the competition so far. His power, his dynamism, his willingness to break the lines, push forward. England are going to have to be aware of that. If he runs off the back of Declan Rice, Declan Rice is in trouble. He will not catch him. I think England have got to press and press and press on Tony Cruz. You can't give him time. If you give him time on the ball, he will pass you to death and it's over. You will have no hope if you give Tony Cruz all day long on the ball. And now with Goretzka in next to him, Cruz is going to be even more dangerous. Because now he's going to have somebody running onto those passes. Or he's going to play it into Havertz, into Muller, into feet. And then they'll find Goretzka as he breaks onto the ball. Then you'll get the wing-backs piling forward. You'll have Nabry movement in behind. And that's going to be trouble for England. I fancy Germany to win this game. They're not without their flaws. I think they have some big flaws in the team. I think they've got some important players who aren't in form. Like Nabry. Like the defence. Not necessarily in great form, but I look at the England team. Sterling will get you goals, but he'll only get you so many. Outside of that, who's getting goals in this England team? It has to be Harry Kane. It has to be Kane. But his form in international tournaments has been so poor, especially in big games against big teams. He's been a non-factor. You go back, you look at Iceland in the last Euros. He was an atrocity. You look at Belgium and Croatia. In the um, in the World Cup, he was awful. He's poor against Sweden, poor against Colombia, despite the goal from the penalty. Harry Kane does not turn up in big games for England. Now, you can also look at his club record, and you can look at his performances in cup finals for Spurs. 
a non-event. Now, admittedly, he's had injuries in two of them, and that's fair enough. But at the same time, Harry Kane has to have a big game here. He has to have a big game. Even if he's not scoring, he has to turn up and play well. And you'd wonder if England will clearly go with Sterling and Saka behind him. You wonder if England's best avenue to victory here is for Kane to start as a nine and then drop off into the ten roll. Saka and Sterling to rush into that space behind. Similar to what we see Youngman Son and either Bergvine, Bale or Lucas Moura do for Spurs when they play that front three where Kane drops off and becomes more of a playmaker, becomes more involved in the build-up play. I think that's England's best best approach. They're going to need to stop Gosens and Kimmich. You'd have a little bit of faith in Luke Shaw, given the form he's in, to do a job on Kimmich. But I don't trust Trippier at all against Gosens. Spoke to Karen Matchett this morning on the, uh, the Euro Incision podcast on Anfield Index, and we both agree Reese James would make more sense here physicality, pace, better in the air, would make more sense against Robin Gosens. Neither of them are particularly good defenders, but when someone's talking to James, he does follow instructions quite well. The issue here is that it's Kyle Walker inside him, and and Kyle Walker is one who needs to listen and not talk. So I think England's, the right side of the defence is going to be shaky. I think Maguire can be a big problem if Germany get moving at him with pace. I think if it's Kim, I think if it's Cruz and Goretzka in midfield, I think that's a big, big advantage for for the Germans. I really do think it's a big advantage. We've yet to see England look more than decent. They had a decent first half against the Czechs. I thought it was the best they've played in the tournament. They had spells against Croatia where they looked okay. They were dreadful against the Scots. England need a big performance, but Harry Kane is key to it all. Uh, we'll take a break, and when we come back, we've got some news. We have a managerial appointment. Looks like it's on, on the horizon. One confirmed as well, and we've got some other bits and pieces. See you in a few. Right, welcome back. So, we have news of a managerial appointment confirmed. Bournemouth have confirmed the appointment of Scott Parker, who has left Fulham to take over the Cherries. Um, it's been a long time coming. It's been an open secret that this was on the horizon. I assume the delay was sorting out compensation. Parker leaves after just over two years in charge at Craven Cottage, 105 games as manager, 37 wins, 25 draws, 43 defeats. Now you can wipe off some of those defeats because he took over at the end of the 1819 season. Fulham were as good as down. He did a decent job trying to keep them up, but ultimately failed. He did a really good job in the championship and brought them up. Surprising to a lot of people that they came back up, given the turmoil that that there was with their squad, where they tried to sell a lot of players, couldn't find buyers, had loaned a few out, and there was just a lot of confusion with what was going on there at the time. He did a really good job to get them back up, but last season, he was a shambles. Last season, he is the sole reason that that Fulham team went down. The talent in that squad should have finished mid-table with any kind of competent manager. He was not a competent manager this last 12 months. So what Bur- what Bournemouth need to hope is that they get Scott Parker from the 1920 season and not the Scott Parker from the 2021 season. It's a big risk, I think, by Bournemouth. They were going well under Woodgate. I'm not a fan of Woodgate as a manager. I think you look at his time at Middlesbrough, I think that says a lot more than when he took over with no pressure at Bournemouth. Didn't perform particularly well in the, in the playoffs either. Bottled the, the situation against uh, Brentford. But... They've gone for Scott Parker. It's a good squad. Now, depending on 
whether or not they can keep everybody this summer, I'd imagine there will be offers in for a couple of them. I think David Brooks will see some some interest this summer. I think um, Jefferson Lerma could see some interest this summer. I know there's a couple of clubs that want Lloyd Kelly. So there's quality there, though. And, of course, the one who really stepped up last year was Dan Juma, who had a really, really impressive season. But there is quality there. There's talent in the squad. Parker needs to figure out what he is as a manager, though. What's his shape? Is it a back three? Is it a back four? Is he going to be defensive-minded the way he was at times this past season or more attack-minded the way he was in the season they came up? I think it's a flexible squad at Bournemouth. You need a couple of pieces. Obviously, I wouldn't be overly keen on Begovic, but I do like Mark Travers, the young goalkeeper. Um, but maybe you want to bring in a different goalkeeper. I really like Lloyd Kelly. Uh, I wouldn't be keen on Jack Stacey, the right back, but there's a lot of experience there. Um, like the likes of Steve Cook that he can rely on. Now, Metham's a good defender as long as he's got a talker next to him. So maybe Metham and Cook is the pair at the back, Kelly at left back. And they get by at right back with, you know, a collection of what they have. Um, in midfield, they've got good options with Lewis Cook, with Philip Billing, with Jefferson Lerma. So, you know, he can mix and match there, figure out what he wants to do. I think Lerma and Cook is probably the best pairing. Billing has a lot of talent, but he doesn't always show it. Now, we saw him at times last year played as a 10, and that did work. it did work in spells. The key to them is absolutely going to be David Brooks. So he's the best player at the club, super talented, absolutely good enough to play for most of the Premier League. If he's fit and in form for the season, they'll have a real chance of promotion as long as Parker doesn't hamper them, as long as he gets it right in other places. They're going to need to hope, really, really hope, that they get a big, big season out of Dominic Solanke. He had a decent season last year. They've got Sam Surge there as, as well, another good young striker. But remember, they paid $21 million for Solanke. He scored 15 goals in 40 championship games last season. They need to hope he can build on that step up, maybe get 20 this season, play a little bit more as well. If he does that, it gives them a chance. With him and Brooks, that gives them a chance. Like I say, there is talent there. You'll have Danjuma on the left wing, maybe, with Brooks on the right, Solanke up front. Maybe he goes with Billing as a 10 and plays Lerma and Cook behind. That'll be hardworking. It'll be good on the ball. It'll be inventive. There's a bit of pace with Danjuma, a bit of pace with, with Brooks. Solanke's going to be key. And then it it may not be Billing as the 10, but if it is, they just need him to be consistently focused, consistently aggressive. When he's aggressive, when he's forceful, he's six foot five. When he puts his will into the game, when he doesn't, he's a problem. He's a bit of a liability. You have to carry his weight. But like I say, if you get him to be aggressive, if you really challenge him, make him forceful, then he's a real asset. Then he can really, especially at that level, because the championship's a physical league. There's no no place to hide in the championship. You've got to go and be aggressive. And if Billing is, Billing can be a big player for them. They'll need to sort out the defence. Like, it will never not annoy me that they looked for months and months and months at Luton and came away with Jack Stacey and not James Dustin. It will never, the backup right back instead of the starting right back, it will never not annoy me that they bought Chris Metham over Esri Conza having scouted Brentford for months either. They could have those two 
right back, right centre back, and Lloyd Kelly, they'd probably still be a Premier League team if they had. Um, a manager who looks like he's on the verge of being appointed is Patrick Vieira, who has agreed to become the new manager of Crystal Palace. Vieira left Nice uh, midway through last season, having spent 18 months in charge. 89 games, 35 wins, 22 draws, 32 defeats. Did concede more than they scored. Wasn't ideal. Not everything went well from before that. He'd managed New York City FC. 90 games in charge there. 40 wins, 22 draws, 28 defeats. Did score a lot, 151 goals in those 90 games, but MLS is league anyway. I'm not sure on this one, if I'm honest. I'm really not sure on this one. I think this is a league where if you start badly, it can really snowball into something you don't want. We saw it with Sheffield United this past season. And with their squad being in such upheaval, with so many players out of contract, I just really don't know if this is the ideal appointment. A manager this inexperienced, who's never managed in England before. He was in the Man City system for four years as a coach. Um, he came quite close, apparently, to taking the Newcastle job before going to New York City FC. But this is a huge job with a squad in turmoil, lots of players at a contract, lots of things needed straight away. And as I say, if you don't start well, it can really snowball on you, especially for an inexperienced manager. And his problem last year was when things went against him, he didn't seem to have the answers to turn turn things around. And that's... That's going to be a problem if he starts badly because we saw with Frank De Boer, Crystal Palace will panic and they'll sack him before they get too far into the wormhole. Um, I hope he does really well. I was a huge fan of Vieira as a player. Um, his teams have played good football. Nice played really interesting football under him. It is funny that you know they came so close to appointing Lucien Favre and when he turned it down, They've gone to the guy who replaced him at Nice. Now, I believe Vieira was on their original list of four. There's been interest there before. I think there was talks before. But, at, look, at least it's a manager in the door. At least now they can start to work towards bringing in players. He'll have really good contacts. He could maybe get a couple of players in on loan from City or from France. Uh, maybe pick up a couple of cheap players in France that he'll know. There's certainly a really good market over there, and there's a lot of good, talented players that would improve this Crystal Palace team. But it is a risk. It is a big, big risk. Um, we'll have to see how it plays out. We'll really have to see how it plays out. In other news, Fernandinho has signed a new one-year contract extension with Man City. Uh, he's been at the club now eight years, so this will get him through nine. He is 36, I think. But they needed to keep him. They needed to have that experience, that leadership in the squad. We've seen over time, Yaya go, Zabaleta go, Company go, Silva go. Now Aguero's gone. He's kind of the last remaining link to the first great City teams. He's the last real leader in that squad as well. The real experience of, of being there, having done it and won it all. He's a quality player, um, but it will mean that you know when he, when he goes next summer, it'll be another year where they lose a, a big figure in the dressing room. Um, but it was important for them to get it done. 
maybe it points to them not wanting to spend money on a replacement for him because they're focusing their their finances on Kane and Grealish. Now, if they pay two hundred and fifty million for Kane and Grealish, anything below winning the Champions League and the Premier League is going to be a massive failure. Will reflect very badly on Pep, especially given all his his um his claims that City couldn't afford to spend huge money on a, a striker this time around. Um. Lionel Messi has become Argentina's most capped player, 148 caps now for Messi. He now has 75 goals as well. That's also an Argentine record. Scored two uh, against Bolivia as Argentina ran out 4-1 winners. I don't know if anyone's paying attention to the Copa America, but it is a mess the way they've done it. There's two groups of two groups of five. And um, only one team gets eliminated from each group. So at the moment, it's looking like Bolivia. Well, Bolivia will be out. And then um, Venezuela, I think, are out in the other group. But it's just needless to play all those games to get rid of two teams. But they're making it up as they go along after all the COVID stuff and after having to move it from, from Argentina and Colombia, it was originally meant to be, into Brazil. Um, we've seen entire squads struck down with COVID. Um, actually, speaking of COVID, it will be interesting to see if Ivan Perisic is back for Croatia's next game. My guess is that he won't be. I think they said he had to quarantine for 10 days. And as things stand, Croatia will be due to play. No, Croatia are out. What am I talking about? Croatia are gone. I don't know what I'm talking about there. Never mind. I've made something up in my head that didn't didn't equate to reality. Uh, the Croatia would have played Friday, but Spain went through. Never mind. Guy, leave that in. I look like a clown, but leave it in. Um, I suppose the last thing to do then is to wrap up with the gossip. There doesn't seem to be any more news. Nothing else is breaking. I'm sure in between now and when you hear this, something else will come out, but there's nothing I can do about that for now. Uh, Sergio Ramos is assessing approaches he has received from Manchester City, Paris Saint-Germain and Bayern Munich before making a decision on his future. I would have doubts that Bayern Munich have made him an offer. At his age and the money he's wanting, I would have great doubts. I think he ends up at PSG. Tottenham Hotspur do not have an option to extend Gareth Bale's loan with them for second season, and the 31-year-old is expected to return to parent club Real Madrid, where he has 12 months left in his contract. That goes against what was reported at the time, at the time of him signing. The, the, the report then was that they had the option to extend them but it was like a a, a costly option like 15 million or something um they're best to let him go back let him go back he played a handful of good games this season let him go back uh Rennes say they have received no offer from Eduardo Camavinga despite the 18 year old being linked to Manchester United and PSG I get the feeling United's name has been used to force PSG into paying up closer to what Rennes want to play they want 100 million they know they're not going to get it PSG apparently only want to pay about 30. I reckon they're trying to push them to pay somewhere in the 60, even 50 range. I think we'll get the job done. Roma are close to agreeing a deal for Rui Patricio. Uh, I think it's good for Wolves to move on. I don't think he's been impressive uh, this past season. They need to make sure they find a good goalkeeper to replace him, though. If it's Jose Sa, that's a disaster. Uh, Arsenal are interested in signing... Portuguese under-21 fullback Nuno Tavares from Benfica. Apparently that deal is in place. Eight million plus add-ons. 
they desperately needed to get in a backup for Kieran Tierney. It also gives them the possibility to play Tierney on the left of a back three and Tavares as a wing as a wing back. He is more attack minded than defensive, but it's a good signing at twenty one as well. Plenty of opportunity for him to grow and even resale value down the line. AC Milan have been offered a chance to sign James Rodriguez and Phil Coutinho. Uh, I would rather sign Coutinho than James um, a million times out of a million. And I think if they can get Coutinho, especially on loan, I think that's a clever signing for Milan. I know his wages are high, but he is still a good player. James is very, very talented, but only shows up half the season. And by shows up, I mean actually is there, let alone plays well. Newcastle will rival French champions Lille in a bid to sign William Saliba on loan. I just can't believe how badly Arsenal are handling that situation. Chelsea are determined to hold on to Marcus Alonso this summer, despite Barcelona and Inter Milan expressing interest in the 30-year-old Spain defender. I mean, I'm not surprised. He was a big part of Thomas Tuchel's squad. He was heavily rotated with with Ben Chilwell. I would say they probably played around an equal number of games under Tuchel. He started the FA Cup final, so it's no surprise that he'd want to keep him there. Arsenal are keen on Torino and Italy striker Andrea Bellotti, but Ace and Napoli and Roma are also looking at 27-year-old. I'd love to see him at Napoli. I think him and Insigne would be great. He'd make sense under Mourinho, especially if Dzeko's going. Fiorentina couldn't afford him in a, in a million years, especially having spent a huge chunk of money on Nico Gonzalez. I don't think they're going to have the money left to go and get Bellotti. I'd love to be wrong. Uh, I, I, I Soft spot for Fiorentina going back to the, the Batistuta, uh, Ruby Costa days. And even before that, when they had Baggio and then they had Brian Laudrup. Um, I don't see Milan as a destination for him. Not now. Inter Milan's Uruguayan forward, Mart- Martin Satriano, is attracting interest from Arsenal, Everton and Tottenham. Don't know a whole lot about him. Hasn't played a bunch, but all three of those could do with a well... Everton and Tottenham could do the backup striker. Everton could just keep Moise Keane, but it looks like they may sell him to bring in some money for say, for uh, for spending. Leicester City are one of a number of clubs interested in a move for Domenico Berardi, who plays for Sassuolo. He'd be a really clever signing. Now, I think he'd be quite expensive. There is also issues with him from a personality point of view, but a club like Leicester might suit him. Similar, a bigger club than Sassuolo, but a similar size in terms of the rest of their league. Um, Brendan Rodgers plays attacking football. He's always best in a team that plays in the front foot. He's shown in the Euros, now he had a poor game against Austria, but he was brilliant in the first two games they played against Switzerland and Turkey. So potentially, potentially that could be one that makes sense. But at the same time, He'd be very expensive. I I think if Leicester are signing him, it means either Madison or Tielemans is on the way out the door. Uh, Norwich City are closing in on the loan signing of Billy Gilmore from Chelsea. Now, I think, haven't they lost? Ollie Skip, I think, is going back to Tottenham. I don't think they agreed an extension. Um, so he will replace him in the, in the squad. And Skip obviously was a big part of how Norwich got promoted, why they got promoted. He was voted in the in the PFA team of the year, having played 45 games in the championship. So I'd imagine Gilmore would go there to replace him. Um, that, that makes sense. Gilmore is a very, very talented player. Uh, Liverpool could sign 
Porto's Brazilian midfielder, Otavio, before Wednesday's deadline for his 34 million release clause. I don't think Liverpool have any interest in him. A lot of Portuguese clubs seem to just use, or Portuguese agents rather, seem to use clubs at Liverpool and United and Chelsea and City to convince new clo- or convince clubs to either sign an extension or do something else. Now, he only signed a new extension a couple of months ago, so it, this is a weird story. Um, Aston Villa and Norwich are both trying to sign 18-year-old Matthew Cox from uh, League One side AFC Wimbledon. Very highly regarded young goalkeeper, 18 years of age. Wouldn't be a big surprise to see him move on uh, this summer because I think AFC Wimbledon could probably do with the money. Uh, Barcelona are considering offering Sergi Roberto, whose current contract runs till 2022, a two-year contract. Makes sense. At 29, he'd be 30 next summer when that one runs out. He'd be 32 when this one runs out. Uh, it would make sense. It really would make sense. West Ham United could appoint Alan, Alan Irvine, who was assistant to Hammers boss David Moyes as the club's direct football. That just seems like foolishness. It's from this football insider site. So probably best just throw that one in the bin. Barnsley are in talks with TSV Hartberg boss Marcus Schopp about the Austrian becoming their new manager after the departure of Valerian Ishmael, who's obviously gone to... West Brom. Now, I don't know anything about him. He was at Sturm Graz. He was the reserve team manager there for a number of years. Then he was at St. Poulton in Austria. He was the assistant manager there. This is his first job as a manager with TSV Hartberg. They finished seventh in the Austrian Bundesliga. They seem to be a very small club. So that may be a, a good accomplishment for them. I don't know much about him. Um, they need him to be more Ishmael than Gerhard Struber, who, regardless of what the hipsters and the analysts say, did not do a good job uh, and was taking them down a very dark route. And then finally, Jamaica want Marcus, sorry, Mason Greenwood to switch his international allegiance from England. Players under the age of 21 who have not played three competitive games are able to make such a change. I don't think there's any possibility Mason Greenwood will give up playing for England. I mean, it would be crazy for him to do so. It would be crazy for England to allow it. He's only got the one cap so far, but he's been in the squad a couple of times. He's he's the future of England's number nine jersey. He is a sensational talent. I, I think if if there's even a hint that he's wavering, England need to put him in the team and just make sure he gets his caps up. Uh, That's it then. That is the show for today. Thank you as always for listening. Thank you to Guy Drinkle. Uh, We will be back tomorrow. See you then. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.